0: I was thinking this week about common phobias. Anybody know what a phobia is? A phobia is something that causes us stress that interrupts our normal life function, right? So, arachnophobia. Anybody know what arachnophobia is? Fear of spiders. Wasn't there a movie, Arachnophobia, Fear of Spiders? Uh, This one is true. Uh, Ophidiophobia, which is a fear of snakes. That's a nasty one. I've got that one. Uh, That's why Satan came as a serpent, right? Anyways, Uh, necrophobia, the fear of death. Some of us have that. Uh, Glossophobia, which is the fear of public speaking. In fact, when I was looking at these this week, I found something really interesting that more people have the fear of public speaking than they do a fear of death. And so what that means is when you go to the funeral, people would rather be in the casket than the one reading the eulogy. Just the way that works. Then there are some of these very interesting phobias. Like, have you ever heard of octophobia? The fear of the number eight. And everyone even diagnosed weird, I know. There's uh, cholerophobia, which is the fear of clowns. I think I have a niece who may have that. Uh, there is uh, onphalophobia, onphilob- which is the fear of belly buttons. And I, I always wonder, like, do you have a greater fear if it's an any or an outie? Like, does that impact the fear There's, this one's true to our society, nomophobia, the fear of being without your phone. That is something we could do something about. Uh, There's windbagophobia, which is a fear of long sermons. I made that one up. It's not real. It's just one I added for your benefit. Have The idea with these phobias is there becomes this little bit of fear. And when you have fear, it causes us to lack courage. When you are overcome with fear, it causes you to lack courage. In fact, I was thinking years ago uh, when I worked at Madison House, one of the things we did at Madison House, we did all sorts of community events. We loved bringing the community in and serving and loving and engaging people. And there was this one year, we had done a block party the year before that was very successful and I thought, you know what would be better about this block party is not if we did ourselves, but what if we invited a bunch of other community organizations? I thought we would have a greater impact. And so uh, I did this. We, we got this block party ready, um, uh, and we kind of turned it into a community fair, uh, community fair. Community fair. I got to get those words right. And so we did our barbecue. We did our games. We invited like the police department to come in and, and do some stuff. We invited Neighborhood Health uh, to come in and do some health screenings. Um, I think we had, um, i trying to remember, I think we had the County Homeless Network was involved. Uh, just a number of organizations that we invited that all served the inner city. And I said, hey, let's come together and do this event. And so we're in this planning meeting before the event. We've got this planning meeting. We're trying to get everything happen uh, to figure it out what it's going to look like. And I had this, this feeling of insecurity came over me in this room. Because I'm, I'm in this room, and there's some great leaders in this room. Like, there's a guy who's got more degrees than the sun. He's just sitting right there, one of the team. Uh, there's a lady. There's a lady. Uh, you, maybe you know this lady. She's extremely bold. And her voice always is the loudest. And she's, we're in this meeting with all this groups of people, and she's hijacking this event. She's like, no, we're not going to do any of the stuff we already talked about. And we're going to take this event and do something completely different. So I'm in this meeting, and it's chaos. There's all these different opinions, all these different things. There's fighting, there's arguing, and, and it's terrible. And we're, what about me? I have this insecurity and this fear that comes over me. Here I am, out of all these leaders, I'm the youngest guy in the room. And you've got people who do great things. I played with kids for a living. Like, that's what I did for my job. And so I'm sitting in a corner lacking courage. I I had this fear come over me that I could not lead when I knew I needed to lead. You ever notice in faith how sometimes it's similar? Where we have this lack of courage that keeps us from doing what God calls us to do. That when we have this fear, this insecurity, whatever happens to be, we, we lack the courage to, to do what God wants us to do. Possibly, maybe because we feel like we're lacking. Possibly, maybe we feel like we're not capable. Maybe we feel like we're not good enough. And so we don't step into the things that God would want us to do. So for example, maybe you know you're supposed to share the gospel with one of your friends or your neighbor or family member. You know they need Jesus. But then you get a little bit of insecurity. Well, I, I don't know all the answers. You know, what if I don't say things just right? And you have this fear that comes over. What if they reject me? What if they say no? It'll make the relationship awkward. And so you have this insecurity, this this fear that comes over, and you lack the courage, and so you don't step into what God would call you to do. Maybe you know you're supposed to go and, and serve in some capacity. You're supposed to go and and do something for the Lord. But again, you you have this insecurity that comes over you. You're like, well, man, you know, I know I've got these struggles. My life isn't perfect. And if people think I'm a hypocrite, like that's not going to be good. And so I lack the courage and I don't do the thing that God calls me to do because of this insecurity, because of lack of, of courage. We miss out on fulfilling the calling that God has placed in our life. This is where we say, if you have your Bible, we're in Judges chapter 6 today. Judges chapter 6. We started a series here a couple of weeks ago looking at the book of Judges. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with your Bible, uh, man, welcome to church. We're glad you're here. This is a great place to learn. Uh, uh, in your Bible, Judges is the seventh book of your Bible. So if you open from the very beginning and start turning to the, la- to the right, you should find the book of Judges in there. What we've seen about the book of Judges is the book of Judges is about a group of people who are doing right in their own eyes. They're living life and saying, hey, this makes sense for us on how to live. This makes sense in our mind. And and so they're not surrendering to God. They're not fully obeying God. And what happens is this happens for every one of us is it leads them into oppression. They begin to suffer and struggle. And so this whole book is this repeat cycle about the people taking their eyes off of God, about, about living the way that seems right to them, and then they go into oppression. And God raises up a bunch of deliverers, a bunch of judges who deliver them out of their suffering until they do the same thing again and again and again. Today, we're going to have our first message on Gideon. We're going to have a couple conversations about Gideon. uh, But today is uh, the first one, Judges chapter 6, looking at Gideon. And it starts in verse 1 that Dan read. It says, The people did evil in the eyes of God once again. Again, this is a cycle that you see again and again and again in this book. And probably the cycle you see again and again and again in our lifetime. That people take their eyes off God. They start living according to their own wisdom. They begin to pursue joy and peace and satisfaction from things other than God. And so what happens, the result is God gives them over to the hands of the Midianites. And the oppression gets really bad under the Midianites. Again, this is a cycle where the uh, the suffering gets worse and worse and worse. And so the Midianites, they actually drove the Israelites out of their homes, drove them from their homes, forced them to, to, to build dens and to live in shelters in the mountains. Okay, so they came in and said, we're kicking you out of your house. We're taking all your stuff. You're going to, have to go up into the mountains and live. And this wasn't just a, a political control. This was obviously an economic exploitation. Verse 3, it says that while they forced them into the mountains, that they plundered all the crops. They took all the farm animals, the little chickens and the cows and all those things. And they did not spare any living thing. In fact, it gets so bad that verse 5 says that they laid the land to waste. Finally, after seven years of this, Israel is poverty-stricken. And they finally cry out to God. Now again, the normal cycle we've seen in Judges, the normal cycle is that when the people finally cry out to God, what does God do? God raises up for them a deliverer, a judge. But that's not what happens here. Verse 8 says the people cry out to God and instead of a savior, instead of God sending them salvation, God sent them a prophet to give them a sermon. Kind of see the, the break in the cycle here? Before the people can appreciate the rescue that well, God was going to give them, the prophet helped them understand why they needed rescuing in the first place. It's important for them to understand not just that God's going to rescue you, but why do you actually need Rescuing. And so the prophet's message, here's what the prophet says. He says, I want you to remember what God has done for you. Remember, remember how God rescued you out of Egypt, how God freed you from slavery from the Egyptians. Remember, remember how God gave you this land and how God drove out the inhabitants so you can take possession of this land. Remember what God has done for you. And then the prophet says, remember God's one command. God had one command, that you do not worship any other God. And verse 9, we get the verdict. The prophet says, you have not obeyed God. You have not obeyed me. And this is where when we see this book of Judges, and you see this cycle again and again, about the people take their eyes off God, and then they cry out for God, and God raises up a deliverer. I think it's a good time for us to talk about the difference between having regret and having repentance. Repentance. Because there's a big difference between regret and repentance. In fact, the Bible, the Bible says there's a, di- a distinction between the two. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, God says that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. That godly sorrow, repentance, uh, leads to salvation. But worldly sorrow brings death. You notice how both repentance and, and, and regret, they, they, they're both characterized by sorrow. But they have vastly different results. And why is that? And here's why. Because worldly sorrow, which we would describe as regret, doesn't bring about real change. Because regret is based on your circumstances, on the consequences of sin. So regret is, I have regret over the consequences I'm having to deal with, but not necessarily the sin itself. It's a horizontal focus, this way. Not thinking about how our sin affects our relationship with God. It's only looking at our consequences and our circumstances. And so what happens is as soon as those consequences are removed, guess what happens? More often than not, the behavior comes back. And the difference between that and true repentance, true repentance is a sorrow for the sin in itself. It is a it is sorrow for how our sin grieves God, how our sin affects our relationship with God, our creator. Regret alone doesn't change a heart. Regret alone doesn't change a life. At best, regret brings behavior modification. You might change for a little while, but as soon as there's no more consequence, means there's no more regret, which oftentimes leads you right back to the thing you started with in the very first place. But genuine repentance is different. Genuine repentance removes all of our uh, regret from the past. Because repentance is going to point us to Scripture. Repentance points us to the gospel. To the fact that Jesus, he went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He went to the cross to pay the worst that could be put on us. And that when we repent, it is us acknowledging that Jesus has removed the greatest consequence of a sin... And it restores us into a right relationship with God. That when we learn to repent and not just have regret, but when we repent, man, that's where we recognize that we deserve far worse consequences than what we might have in this lifetime. But the greatest punishment fell on Jesus so that you and I can be redeemed and forgiven and made in a, back into a right relationship with God. So as we think about this, as we think about our sin and maybe our life cycle, the question you need to ask yourself is what is it you are really sorry about? Like Israel, are you only sorry that you're dealing with the consequences of sin? Is it just regret? Or have you moved to repentance that leads to true change? You'd think, the prophet comes and preaches this message. Hey, here's what's happened. You think the people are going to repent? Verse 11 doesn't tell us that there's true heartfelt repentance. In fact, verse 11, it simply says that the angel of the Lord came, and the angel of the Lord, he found Gideon. But here's what I see in this. I don't see repentance from Israel, but here's what I see, that God is commissioning a judge. God is bringing a savior even before the people have ever repented. Think about that. You don't see them repenting here, but God is calling a judge in Gideon. And do you see how marvelous God is? Do you see how wonderful God is? That God doesn't save us because we repent. No, we repent because He's already begun saving us. God doesn't wait till we, to God doesn't wait for us to repent before He begins to save us. Think about this. Romans chapter five verse eight says, "While we were still sinners, while we were still rebelling against God." that Christ died for us, before we turn to him, you see how marvelous God is? That before we actually acknowledge him, he's already begun a work to save us and to bring us into a relationship with him. This is where we see that God, he doesn't compromise his holiness. Sin is still going to be dealt with. On the other side, God still doesn't compromise his grace. Oftentimes what happens in Christian worlds as we emphasize one or the other we emphasize God's holiness God's holiness and so it's all about the works it's all about looking the right part and so we overemphasize this and it leads to people feeling like man I'm never going to match up I'm never going to be good enough for God or on the flip side we overemphasize God's grace and so on that side there's that we tell people there's nothing you could do that would ever make you be rejected by God And it's not until we look at the cross that we see that God displays the fact that he is a God of perfect holiness and a God of perfect grace. That he brings these two things together on the cross that our sin can be dealt with. Every sin can be dealt with. And on the other hand, we get to experience grace because that payment for sin is not on our shoulders. It's on his. So in the cross, we see this display of perfect holiness and grace. So verse 11, the angel of the Lord, he comes and he finds Gideon. Comes to Gideon while he's beating wheat in a wine press, while Gideon is hiding from the bad guys. Now, if you're a city boy like me, let me tell you how this works out. I had to research this because I'm a city boy. And so when it says that they're beating, the, 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 they're, they're fleshing out the wheat, uh, a wine press is a terrible place to do that. Because what would happen in that day is you'd go to a hill and you'd take this wheat and you'd throw the wheat up into the air and the wind would blow away like the, the light stuff that isn't very good. It, 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 the, I don't know what it is. The bad stuff. It would blow the bad stuff away and the wheat was heavier and the wheat would fall back down to the earth and so then you'd be able to gather the wheat. So you would go up onto a hill where there's lots of wind like it was yesterday. That's what you're looking for. But Gideon, he's in a wine press which would have been done underground. And you can imagine that's a terrible place for him to do this job. There's no wind underground. Why is he there? Because he's afraid. He's afraid of the big bad wolf. He knows the Midianites are going to come and conquer and, and deal with this. So we see Gideon, just by the fact of what he's doing, we see that Gideon is no Jack Bauer, right? He's no, he's no Chuck Norris. He, he's a coward. That is who he is. But look what the angel says to him in verse 12 verse 12, it says, the angel of the Lord came to him and said, you mighty man of valor. He says, the Lord is with you, oh mighty man of valor. Now that's, that's not expected. That's not what you expect to see when God comes to Gideon hiding in the wine press. That would be like LeBron James coming up to me and say, hey big buddy, hey big guy, how's it going? Like that's not what I would anticipate. That's not But this is the key idea of this whole passage. That God doesn't call Gideon because Gideon is the most courageous, because he's the most competent, because he's the most gifted. That God makes Gideon courageous as a result of the call that God has placed on his life. This is where we have to understand that God God doesn't call the brave. Rather, God makes brave those whom he calls. That, that what, what God is doing is—he's is not looking at who Gideon is. He's not looking at who what Gideon has done. He's looking at what God is going to do through Gideon. And this is good news. This is going to tell us that God does not reward those who are righteous and those who are courageous, but rather God looks at men and He makes them righteous. He makes them courageous. So, the angel of the Lord comes up to Gideon, mighty man of valor. And Gideon, he's like, I don't know what you're going to do here, but I got two questions for you. Verse 13, number one. Question number one. Listen, if God is with us, God, if you're with us, then why are all these bad things happening? God, if you're with us, why have the Midianites driven us out of our homes and forced us into the mountains? Has God abandoned us? And I think that we've already seen that the prophet has already answered that message for him. That God has not left you, but the people have actually left God, which is the way it works. And so then then, uh, Gideon asks his second question. He says, where are all the wonderful deeds that our fathers have told us about? Remember all those things that God did? Remember how God rescued us out of Egypt? Remember how he parted the Red Sea? How come we don't see God doing things like that? Where does he do things like that anymore? And notice he asks that question, think about this, while an angel is sitting in front of him. The irony there, there's an angel right there. But look at how the angel answers. Verse 14, it says, the angel turned to him and said, I want you to go in this might. I want you to save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. He says, do not I send you. Gideon, God, where are all these great deeds Angel of the Lord, where are all these great things that God used to do? And God says, you know what? I'm about to do them through you. You're the one I'm going to send. You're the one I'm going to work through. I mean, that's where we begin to look at our lives and wonder, man, I wonder what God is doing here. Like, how come we don't see God doing all these great things in our day and age? And here's the answer. Because often you and I, we are the activity of God amongst our generation. This is where we look at our world, and it feels like, God, where are you? Listen, Jesus has not stopped his work, but what happens is he works through us. And so when we begin to look at our family, our school, our workplace, our neighborhood, our community, and we wonder, man, what's God doing here? God isn't doing anything. That's because God wants to do it through us, and we're sitting back on the sidelines, and so God can't do it until we step into the game. You are the answer that God is looking for. You are the miracle that God wants to use. So God says this to Gideon. And Gideon, in verse 15, he's like, how can I save Israel? How can I save Israel? Behold, my clan, I come from the weakest family. Like, we come from the weakest family, and I am the weakest of my entire, my, 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 my family. I'm the weakest of them all. He says, I, Gideon says, I'm a coward. I'm the guy hiding in a wine press. God, you can't do this. you You can't use me. And look at verse 16. In fact, I would encourage you to underline this. Because the angel of the Lord says, I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one. He says, I will be with you. Gideon on his own, he's like, I'm too weak. I don't have the courage. I can't save Israel. I can't do this. And this is where God says, yes, but if I'm with you, with God, all things are possible. On your own, you can't, but with God, all things are possible. And this is where I look at Gideon, and I don't don't want you to think like, oh, he's so much, no, he's much like you and I. He's got insecurity, he's got doubt, he's got fear. And so despite the fact that this angel of the Lord has come and spoken to him, he still has this little bit of insecurity or doubt. And so verse 17, uh, Gideon says, hey, What is the evidence that God really... Give me some evidence that God really wants me to do this. Let me know this is really God speaking to me. So what Gideon does is he takes a goat and he prepares prepares it. He takes some bread and he puts it in a pot and he's preparing an offering to God. And he takes this offering and he puts it on a rock and he sets it before the angel of the Lord. What the angel of the Lord does is he takes his staff and he reaches it out over the pot and boom fire comes out of the rock. Boom! There's this miracle that happens in front of him, and all of a sudden, the angel vanishes. And in that moment, in that moment, Gideon knows this isn't just any angel. He knows this is an angel. This is a theophany. A theophany is one of those uh, religious words, theological words, that means an, an appearance of God in the Old Testament. That he realizes this wasn't just an angel, this was a God in the form of an angel who has come to speak to him. And all of a sudden, he's like, okay, God, I get it. I guess you really want me to do this. I guess this really is you speaking to me. Okay, God, I'm in. Verse 25, that night, it says, God tells Gideon, I want you to tear down the altar of Baal. That's not your father's house. This is a false god. I want you to tear that down, uh, and I want you to build an altar to God. What's interesting about this is you think about this, you think about Gideon, he knew about God's miracles, right? I think you look at his family and you see that, that Gideon knew about Egypt. He knew about all these things. In verse 13, Gideon says, God, how come you don't do the things like you did before? Like lead us out of Egypt and, and part the Red Sea. Yet we also see his family has these, uh, these, false, uh, these altars of the false idols, the false gods. And so you see in his family that this is a people who maybe they worship God formally. Maybe if you ask them, what religion are you? They're going to say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus. I love Jesus. When their lives revolved around these false gods, the agricultural gods of Baal, the sex and beauty gods of Asherah, the business gods, whatever it happens to be. How many of us are lives like that? Oh, we click on Facebook, I'm a Christian. We fill out the survey, I'm a Christian. But our lives are centered around all these other false idols. Places that we're taking uh, security from. And peace from and joy from. So verse 20, So, what happens, verse 27, is that Gideon, again, what do we know about Gideon? He, he's a coward. So Gideon's afraid. So he waits till night. And he destroys the altars and he builds a new altar at night. But what I love about this idea is before Gideon can go and take out the enemies from the outside, before he can deal with the Midianites, Gideon's got to deal with the enemies on the inside. See how that works? Where here's Gideon, here's his family, they, they, they claim to worship God, they, they claim to be Christian, but they've got these, all these other things that, that take their worship away from God. And before God's going to send him to go deal with the Midianites, he starts right at home. Hey, we've got to deal with this stuff you got to get rid of these altars you got to rid of these idols you got to get rid of these false gods and this is true so often in our own lives That before god helps us with those obvious things those visible problems money problems relationship problems whatever it happens to be before god will help us with those things he wants us to see the idols in our lives that we worship in addition to god he wants us to clean our own hearts out before we go and deal with these other things. So what is, what is this story telling you and I? What does this story teach us? I think very simply, I think that what the story chapter, Judges chapter 6 tells us about from Gideon, is that our calling, which is whatever God wants to do through you, which is what God wants to use, how God wants to use us, our calling is not in response to our courage to our wisdom, to our greatness. I think we see that God doesn't call, uh, God doesn't choose the qualified. God doesn't doesn't choose the brightest. What Gideon is telling us is that our courage comes from our calling. That God doesn't call the qualified, God qualifies the called. That when God comes to Gideon, he doesn't start with who Gideon is. He doesn't call him uh, the story that Gideon's life has been. He's a coward. He's weak. He's afraid. He's incapable. He's unqualified. God doesn't come to him and say these things about him. No, what God does is he says, I'm going to tell you who I intend to make you. God calls him mighty man of valor. Not coward. Not weakling not the weakest person of the weakest tribe of uh, of Israel. No, God calls him what he's going to do through him. He looks at a man carrying in a hole and calls him a man of valor. In fact, you see this idea throughout the entire Bible. Like like Moses, God calls Moses, "Hey, you're going to lead." You're going to go to Pharaoh. and You're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Charlton Heston does such a good job with that. Like, this is what you're going to do. And what does Moses say? Moses says, I, I can't speak. I, I stumble. I stutter. I, I can't do that. And what does God say? God says, I will be your mouth. Think about the story of Abraham and Sarah. God tells Abraham, hey, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be father of thousands upon thousands. Abraham and Sarah are like, this is sweet. So we start waiting and waiting. 70 years old, 80 years old, 90 years old. It's kind of like, I don't think so, God. Like, we've waited all this time. Like, I'm 90 years old. That can't happen anymore. Until God opens up Sarah's womb. At 90 years old, Abraham's 100. Like, I can't. I can barely walk at this age. Can you imagine doing all of that? This is what God does. He doesn't look and see our story. He looks at what he was going to do through you. In fact, Romans chapter 4, this becomes a definition of faith. Romans chapter 4 says that Abraham is justified by faith. That he believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. And then he gives us this definition of what faith is. Verse 4 verse 17 it says faith is believing god when he calls things into existence that do not yet exist faith is when god calls things into existence that do not yet exist this is the message of the bible this is the message of the gospel this is what it's all about that god doesn't save us because we're worthy god doesn't save us because we're so awesome God doesn't save us because he needs you. God doesn't save you because you're so amazing. We don't earn our salvation. We couldn't even if we tried. But God, in the middle of our sin and our selfishness and our rebellion against him, that God chooses to set his love on us, chooses to redeem us. And this is the way it works with every one of us. That God looks at us and doesn't speak of our story. doesn't speak of our past doesn't speak and say, Kevin, remember all those dumb things you've done? Kevin, remember what you did this week? No, God doesn't look at that and speak that to us. What God does is he speaks of who he is making us to be. He speaks words of truth and love where he looks at the worst of us and says, you are my beloved. He says, you are righteous. You are a saint. You are a mighty man of valor. That God doesn't see our past. He sees our future. Here's my problem though. Sometimes I have a hard time hearing the voice of God in my life. Because sometimes the, 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 the voice of the world and the voice of our enemy, Satan, man, it's a, sometimes that's a louder voice, right? Sometimes it's a louder voice where I hear the world around me. I hear Satan fill my mind and I struggle to believe what God says about me. Satan doesn't want us to hear what God wants to do with us in the future. In fact, Revelation 12 calls Satan, he's the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us day and night. And so here's the accuser of the brethren. He's whispering into Gideon's ears. He's saying, Gideon, you're weak. Gideon, you're a coward. Gideon, there's no way that God can use you. And the accuser whispers into so many of us, he whispers into our ears, you're a failure. I know what you've done. I know you're trying to live for God, but I know you don't live up to those expectations. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not capable. God can never use someone like you. You know how you tell the difference between the voice of God and the voice of Satan? Satan always starts with our sin, who we are and what we've done, and he beats us up for it. That's what Satan does. And you hear that voice in your mind where you feel like, man, I'm incapable. I'm not able to do this. But God, through the Holy Spirit, he speaks words of declaration of who God is making us in Jesus. That is the difference between the voice of God and the voice of our enemy is God speaks words of truth of who he is making us out to be. Listen, and we grow into that. We grow into that as we surrender and as we follow after him. I'll just tell you how this has played out for me. Again, I've dealt with my own fair share of insecurity in my life there's times where i just have no confidence in myself i have no confidence in my abilities i have this terrible problem where i play the comparison game anybody play the comparison game where you look at other people and you're like man they're smarter than i am they're better leaders than i am they're better communicators than i am they're 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 all these other things and i begin to feel like i man i just don't measure up i don't belong And I can sit in a room where I'm supposed to be a leader and fear overcomes me because I just don't feel like I'm good enough. In fact, I would say, listen, if you're someone like me who deals with some of this insecurity, insecurity is just a place where the gospel has not yet taken root in our hearts. That's what insecurity is. Remember that meeting I told you about in the introduction? Madison House, we have all these community members together. We're trying to put on this big event. And everything's going bad. Everything's terrible. People are arguing. It's just chaos. And, and what am I doing? I'm like Gideon, hiding in the wine press, cowering because I'm not good enough. Cowering because I'm not capable. And I have this Holy Spirit moment. There's an older generation... There's an older gentleman who was in this meeting with us. I think he may have worked for the county. I don't exactly remember who he worked for. I remember he had these really big, thick glasses, like the hipster glasses, but this is before they were hipster. So, like, this was like, I think he really needed the big, thick glasses. Good guy. And so we're in this meeting, and he says, Hold on a second. Gets everybody's attention. And he says, Kevin, Kevin, you put together a proposal with tremendous vision for our city. You have this vision to bring all of us together, to say we can do more together than we can alone. He said, Kevin, that's what brought us here today. He said, you are the one with the vision. You're the one we need. You're the voice we need to hear right now. We need your direction. And this old guy, who's smart, who's done all sorts of things in his life, he says, Kevin, Kevin, I'm going to put my hat 100% behind you, and I'll do whatever you ask me to do. It was in that moment where I just felt like God reminded me of the call that he had put on my life. That God had given me a desire to love my community, to bring unity amongst a bunch of organizations that typically had disunity. That we could make a greater impact of our neighborhood if we just figured out how to work together. And this man says this, and this peace comes over me, and this courage fills my heart. This courage that came from God. Listen, God doesn't call the bold. He emboldens the call. And that voice, in my, 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 that moment, my voice became strong. and He started directing the pieces, and we ended up having this great event. We had over 1,000 a, a people from inner city Yakima come together into the little, hand, little property of Madison House. Guys, it's this idea that God doesn't call the bold. He emboldens the called. God doesn't call the equipped. He he equips those of us who are called. God doesn't call those of us who are brave. He makes brave those of us who are called. You know what that means? That means we don't have to fake it. Like, we step into these settings and we're like, hey, look, I'm greater than I really am. I'm not afraid. And I have this, oh, look how good I am. We don't have to fake it. Because God gives us the courage we need to do what he's called us to do. That God gives us the strength we need to do what he's called us to do. What is it that God has called you to do? What is it God has asked you to do? Again, we are often... We are often the activity of God in our family, in our school, in our community, in our churches. God wants to do the miraculous, and He wants to do it through you and I. You got that family member, that friend that needs help; they need Jesus. I know you've got excuses. I don't have all of the answers. I don't know what to say. I have this fear that I'll be rejected and make the relationship awkward. Listen, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips those of us that are called. You have this feeling, maybe I should serve in ministry. Maybe I should plug in and engage. Maybe step into some leadership. But, oh, I have that fear. What if I'm not capable? I've never done this before. I, I just don't know if I can do that. I won't measure up with the other people. Listen, courage doesn't come from our ability. Courage comes from our calling. Begin to think about the things that God has asked of you. God has, has called you to contribute to the church. Maybe you're supposed to serve or give or engage in whatever capacity. Maybe you've been called to, to repent of some sin. You've been carrying on to this sin for too long and saying, I just can't get rid of it. Maybe you've been called to forgive. Called to love. When we look at all these things, and we're, I'm just not sure I can do that. I'm not sure I'm good enough. I'm not sure I'm strong enough. And you can't. I mean, Gideon said that. How how can I save Israel? God's response? I will be with you. With God, all things are possible. That we are filled with God's courage when we get the calling from God. So what is it you need to do this week? Like Gideon, maybe for you, maybe you need to throw off the enemies on the inside before you can deal with what God has called you to do. Maybe for you, maybe you've been listening to Satan for too long. Maybe for you, you need to hear what God says about you. That God looks at you and says, You, you, you who are hiding in the wine press, you are a mighty man of valor. You who've been rejected by all sorts of people, you are loved. You who feel completely alone, you're not. I'm with you. You are fearless. Those things that God has called us to do, we can do because God gives courage to those of us who are called. With God, all things are possible. We pray for you.